When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. What's it like in um, teenage parent land? Um, oh my God. <laughs> I'm Alex Higley. And I'm Lindsay Hunter. And, and I'm, I'm a writer. writer but... Welcome to I'm a Writer, but today we have Steve Almond. Steve Almond is the author of 11 books of fiction and nonfiction, including the New York Times bestsellers Candy Freak and Against Football. His essays and reviews have been published in venues ranging from the New York Times Magazine to Plowshares to Poets and Writers, and his short fiction has appeared in Best American Short Stories, The Pushcart Prize, Best American Mysteries, and Best American Erotica. Almond is the recipient of grants from the Massachusetts Cultural Council and the National Endowment for the Arts. He co-hosted the Dear Sugars podcast with his pal Cheryl Strayed for four years and teaches creative writing at the Neiman Fellowship at Harvard and Wesleyan. He lives in Arlington, Massachusetts with his family and his anxiety. Welcome, Steve. (laughs) Yes, accurate. I love that that's in your bio. (laughs) I like to be (laughs) upfront. It's so relatable. I think all writers can relate to that. Um. Yeah, so you're here to talk to us about your new novel, All the Secrets of the World, which is, uh, I think the word that I used earlier was capacious and broad and um, all-encompassing, and um, but also so granular, to steal a word that Alex likes to use, so um, focused and beautiful. Um, and uh, to start, we would love to hear you read to us. Yeah, so, you know, I am not generally known, it, like, not that there's a large group of people saying what about almonds reputation like i'm a (laughs) but amongst the people who do know me i am not known as a plot person so it's really odd and unusual like the plots of my short stories are like the lonely horny guy is lonely and horny at the beginning at the end of the story he is also those things it's a little bit odd for me to have written what amounts to kind of almost like a thriller yeah. And, um, so it has spoiler alerts, which which is so I'm going to read from the beginning. You can hear me kind of flipping around. I'm just going to read a short scene from um, the beginning. And all you need to know here, I think, is that the book begins with the meeting of two teenage girls, eighth graders named Lorena Sines and Jenny Stallworth. Jenny is tall and blonde and beautiful and she's rich. And they're paired for the science fair, Lorena and Jenny, by a well-meaning teacher who thinks, well, you know, Lorena, who's very studious and intelligent, and we find out very courageous, um, but who comes from a background of of not poverty, but real privation. Her family, her mother and brother are both undocumented. Um, and so she sort of learned to be invisible over the course of her life for necessity's sake. And when they meet, because this is set in 1981 in Sacramento, California, sort of the, at the dawn of the Reagan era, they don't just do their science fair project by google text or whatever google pages they actually like 
Lorena has to go into the Stallworth house. And the, the moment she sets foot in the Stallworth mansion, all kinds of craziness is uh, unleashed. And the central thing that happens is both of the Stallworth parents, Rosemary, sort of the glamorous junior league type, and, and Marcus, who's kind of a, a shy, handsome, reclusive um, scientist, both of them take an unnatural interest in Lorena. And so Lorena winds up unexpectedly finding herself invited on a family camping trip. And Mr. Stallworth has, Mr. Mrs. Stallworth is like, no way I'm going out into the desert. So it's just Mr. Stallworth and Jenny and Lorena and um, Jenny's older brother, Glenn, on this camping trip. And there's a big surprise that's going to be revealed. And it turns out that surprise involves um, going out into the desert at night, which Jenny decides is not for her. But Lorena is quite brave. So she winds up going out into the desert with Mr. Stallworth and Jenny's older brother, Glenn, who's kind of a jerky soccer player type. And um, I'll just read a little bit of what happens out in the desert. Mr. Stallworth led them into the darkness. He lugged an oversized lantern, which he set down on a small rise. Close your eyes and keep them shut until I say, do it, Glenn murmured. Okay, open. An iridescent purple light gleamed out in all directions. Lorena's eyes scrolled an ocean of sand upon which now lay scattered scores of tiny glow-in-the-dark toys, the sort kids on TV pulled from cereal boxes. Then the toys began to move. These were living creatures, many-legged and scrabbling like tiny lobsters. Welcome to Scorpionville, Glenn said. Lorena glanced at, at the sand around her feet. A scorpion the length of a hairpin labored under the weight of its stinger, which hung like a fang jewel over the armored segments of its body. Don't be frightened. Mr. Stallworth was suddenly right beside her. What do you think? There, Lorena cast about for the right word, stunned to find the truth in such a simple one. They're beautiful. She could feel Mr. Stallworth inspecting her face, trying to figure out if she really meant it. He took off his glasses and began furiously polishing the lenses with the hem of his shirt. For a queer moment, Lorena imagined grabbing his glasses and tossing them away. We gonna take any home, Glenn asked. Mr. Stallworth pulled a small flashlight from his pocket and swept the purple beam across the sand. We might as well see who's hunting tonight. To Lorena's astonishment, he knelt down and guided a scorpion onto his palm. The animal was the size of a matchbox. Its pinchers pawed the air. Shouldn't you have gloves, Lorena said. You just come at them from behind, Glenn said. They can't sting backwards. They're not aggressive animals, Mr. Stallworth explained. They just want to be left alone. Tell her about the dance, Glenn said. Mr. Stallworth let the scorpion scuttle from one hand to the next. Yes, you might like this. During courtship, the scorpions grasp each other's pedipalps, their pinchers. They perform a kind of dance. It's called the promenade a deux. It looks like they're fighting, but it's just the opposite. It's how they select a mate. Mr. Stallworth returned his focus to the animal. You see these little hairs along their legs, he said. This is how they hunt, by touch, by vibration. They can register the movement of a single grain of sand from 10 yards away. Why do they shine, Lorena said. Nobody knows, Mr. Stallworth replied. Fluorescence must convey some kind of evolutionary advantage, but it's still their little secret. Glenn asked his father to find a scorpion he could pick up. Mr. Stallworth scanned the ground with his magic light. These are your best bet, he said. Sand scorpions. Aren't they poisonous, Lorena said. 
This species isn't too bad. She watched Mr. Stallworth gently prod the scorpion under Glenn's hand. The creature scampered along his knuckles. It looked glum, menacing, painfully shy. Are you going to pick one up? Glenn asked Lorena. I'm sure she's had enough excitement for one night, Mr. Stallworth said. I'm not scared. The words came out louder than Lorena intended. More softly, she added, I'd like to hold one. Mr. Stallworth switched on the lantern. He stared at her face again, half in wonder, and picked up another one, bluish under the light, a gentle species, he said, its sting no worse than a wasp. She reached out, and Mr. Stallworth uncurled her fingers. The earth was trembling beneath her. Then she realized that it was her, and not the earth. You don't have to do this, Mr. Stallworth said. I know. Do you trust me? She met his gaze and nodded, and Mr. Stallworth lowered the animal onto her. No way, Glenn said. The creature clung to the knob of her wrist like a charm. Slowly, tentatively, it began to move toward her hand, the legs rising and falling like jointed oars. Lorena's pulse lurched. She closed her eyes to keep from flinching. Tiny feet tickled her palm. She felt the dampness beneath her clothes, the dizziness of what was going to happen next. When she could stand it no longer, she opened her eyes. The scorpion was perched on her thumb, perfectly still, its stinger hoisted like a tiny scythe. He appears to like you, Mr. Stallworth said. And it just gets creepier from there, folks. <laughs> <laughs> I'm so glad you read a part with the scorpions because it's something that comes back um, in a lot of different ways throughout the book. Um, mm -hmm. You know, we've got Nancy Reagan and her astrologer and, you know, um, talking about how um, Tony is a Scorpio. And then of course, Lorena's interest in scorpions and Marcus's and yeah. um, I, I just want to hear from you. Did it start with scorpions for you? Like when did the scorpions come in? Well, Maybe 25, 30 years ago, when I was a reporter in El Paso, straight out of college, I was actually taken out into the desert, and I had the exact experience that Lorena had, wow. having these scorpiologists, you know, literally just walk me out into a patch of desert that I assumed was completely barren and empty, and they flicked on this ultraviolet light, and suddenly there were thousands oh my God. of glow-in-the-dark scorpions, oh all my around, God. like this invisible world, and of course... The book is very much about the, the conflict within Lorena of wanting to be, you know, having learned to be invisible and suddenly becoming visible. And she's so desperate. She knows she needs to stay hidden because her family is undocumented. She can't come to the attention of you know, the authorities or anyone else. She really needs to keep invisible. But she's so desperate to be seen and understood and even, as we discovered, desired. And she really comes alight under the glow of the stalwarts, especially Marcus, but Rosemary and Jenny as well. And I, the more I thought about scorpions, the more I realized they seem to us like this species that's completely primitive and alien and frightening. But like that description of those tiny hairs along their legs and how they can feel a single grain of sand moving 10 yards away, that to me, guys, is like sitting at my at my family dinner table, like how incredibly sensitive human beings are, mm -hmm. and how much they can read the vibe of the people they love just from a tiny gesture, even at a distance. And the same thing is true. I think scorpions are a species that see themselves as the victim, as prey, as something that has to remain hidden. 
and at the same time they're perceived as and they really are in in other contexts quite predatory and to me that was also a great sort of metaphor for the human arrangement where we constantly think of ourselves as the injured party or the the, the potential victim even as we're behaving in ways that are destructive and so many of the characters in the book including Lorena herself behave in this way where one part of them is brave and maybe even dangerous and risk-taking and another part of them is inhibited and frightened. It feels to me like we were just talking about being parents. It feels to me like being a parent as well. (laughs) (laughs) Absolutely. Just sort of like always wounded and heartbroken, but at the same time, like, you know, staunch. (laughs) Yeah, absolutely. And I think kids are very much um, sort of speaking always in, in sort of instinctually in in a kind of code, there's a part of them that does want to be seen and understood and accepted. And there's another part of them that needs to protect their sense of self and they need Mm -hmm. to disappear or be invisible or not be noticed. And Lorena is one of those exceptional people. When the muse walked her into my imagination, I was like, this is the horse I'm going to ride on Mm -hmm. because like every great hero or heroine, she's really so ambitious and courageous and so hungry for a larger life but of course, for her, like Jane Eyre or whoever else, that desire, that ambition is is ultimately really dangerous to her and her people. Mm-hmm. At the top, Steve, you'd mentioned that this was a book that uh, took 30 years to complete. Obviously, you published many, many books and had many lives in between beginning and finishing and publishing this book. But I was so curious about over the course of that time, how much the shape of this narrative changed, how much your specific interests within the narrative ebbed and flowed, if if what you had really ended up being a much more polished version of what you started with. I'd really just kind of love to hear the story of this novel, of how it came to be and 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 why the amount of time, why taken off. <laughs> right. I would love to hear it. Yeah. Well, I, I, it's, it's a story I'm happy to tell you, though, I'm, I'm depressed to have to sort of admit that it took me so long to figure out how to write a novel. I carried through so much of my career, this internal voice. It's like, okay, you've written these nonfiction books and you've written some books of stories, but you're, you're, you're really essentially a failed novelist and you can <laughs> never really get this form down. And there's a real reason for that. It's, it's so, to me anyway, it was so excruciatingly difficult to master a big plot and what I I think what in previous iterations of this novel and many other failed novels that I have you know sort of stinking away in drawers um I I hadn't figured out what Aristotle calls the artful arrangement of incidents by which he really means a chain of consequence not just this happened and this happened and this happened and this happened but this happened and because this happened this next thing happened and therefore this next thing and once i discovered that chain of consequence because lorena goes into the walks into the stallworth mansion she comes to the attention of of the stallworth parents because of that she's desperate to get their attention in regard because of that marcus's desire is activated because of that and on and on and on and once i figured out that the novel was really going to be about Lorena getting herself and her family into a lot of trouble inadvertently. And then the question of whether she was going to be able to rescue them and save her people. It really gave me something that was pulling me through the book 
where in previous versions, I was sort of pushing Lorena and the other characters around, kind of hoping they would bump into the big ticket items, like mm. <laughs> eternal conflict and self-revelation and desire and ruin and so forth. And it's it, it really just took me a, a long time to figure out also how all of these characters individual trajectories were going to collide with one another and you know i wish i could say i'm just i'm just slow at, at figuring out the mechanisms of plot and the larger architecture of how a novel has to take shape once i figured it out I really i started writing in earnest probably 2014 oh wow the, the final version of what was going to become all the secrets of the world then i put it down for a couple of years because you might recall we had this election in 2016 which mm -hmm. i said yeah sorry sorry but it happened like a lot of <laughs> like a lot of artists or writers it really knocked me off my game i could not stay in this fictional world which was so compelling to me but it felt like the pressure of the real what was happening in, in the real world sort of sent me off on a couple of nonfiction projects. One of, you know, a book that was partly a literary investigation of the forces that led to that election. I just needed to work that out for myself. And that became a book. But when I came back to Secrets, it was such a different world. It was 2018, 2019. Mm -hmm. And people like Lorena and especially her older brother, Tony, who's undocumented, and who traveled from Central America and was taken by a parent at a young age on a you know thousand mile um, really ordeal through the through several countries and up into the United States, like that was those families were being torn apart at the border. Mm -hmm. the U.S. Mm -hmm. government was in the business of literally permanently traumatizing those children and their parents. And I think that really changed the direction that the novel ultimately turned in. I knew that I needed to um, really write about the criminalization of the American dream, which I think is what the U.S. immigration system is about for certain people from certain countries with a certain skin tone and who speak a certain language. Um, we basically say the American dream is a crime. If you want to pursue it, you're going to be treated as a criminal. And for me, I think that's why the, the novel turned in the dark direction it did. I, I didn't realize it, but I was writing a social novel. And mm -hmm. when you're writing a social novel, your job really is to show what happens when, when people without power collide with big systems of power that they have to live within. What I love about now knowing all that, Steve, is it makes the novel more impressive to me because you really do not play your hand uh, narratively at all early on. I, you know, you, right. you get through book one and I didn't, other than page count, I did not have a sense of how broad the scope of the narrative was going to be, right. how sweeping, how many characters would become central to the plot. Right. And, and the, how quick the rotation through POVs would be, especially as the book progressed in, in a way that I, I, as a reader love, I love, I love that kind of reading experience. And it's so wonderful to hear that even though this book took a long time to write, and even though, you know, took a lot less time once you sat down in earnest, it sounds like yeah. the there's, there was a kind of preservation of, uh, 
the safety of the characters in a way that I, I mean, that's a, that's a crazy way to say it. But what I mean is that everything that's to come, the, the social interest of the novel, the, the exploration of the, of the American dream, as you were just talking about that, that that's present early on, but not in a way that feels thematically onerous. You know, I I love that it's, it's, it starts off and you're really just reading about two girls in their lives in the mm-hmm. best way. I mean that, yeah. I mean that as a compliment. Yeah, no, I mean, and, and I was unaware of that, Alex. I mean, I think if I'd said, I'm going to write a big ambitious social novel, that's what I'll do. I would have gotten intimidated and I would have gotten self-conscious and I would have overwritten it. And I think I needed to sort of um, organically understand as I wrote that the more I encountered new characters the more i was determined to figure out okay if there are police involved i don't want them to be flattened out into like the hard-bitten detective mm-hmm. i want to understand why pedro guerrero makes the decisions he makes and the only way i can understand that is if i travel into his past and understand who he was and you know why he became a police officer and the same is true of every single character where the the more i got to know them the more determined i was to see them as round and complex Mm -hmm. even nancy reagan who by the way i spent 40 years in my mind sort of caricaturing as this modern marie antoinette with her china patterns and her ditzy astrology (laughs) really took moving into her point of view to realize well she is like many powerful entitled people um, you know, unaware of the damage that that she's doing, but also she's a traumatized spouse mm-hmm. who saw her beloved husband almost get killed, you know, a bullet being, you know, lodged, uh, you know, a, a, a half an inch from, from his heart or, you know, a quarter of an inch. And so she adopted a belief system that she thought would keep her beloved safe. And any mm-hmm. of us would do the same. I mean, I'm a strong believer that novelists and and writers in general we're the fools in charge of forgiveness it is not acceptable you have to to simply flatten out any character who's who's really who you're going to deeply examine so as i was moving through the book in every moment i was thinking i don't want this to just be a police procedural i don't want this to just be a kind of ya book i don't want this to just be a desert walkabout i want to use every scene to try to understand who these characters are and why they make the decisions they make so that the reader doesn't see any of them as a villain or a victim, but as what most human beings are, which is some confounding combination of the two, including Lorena, who Mm -hmm. makes decisions that we, she comes to see are, she's complicit in, in much of what happens to Mm -hmm. her. There's big systems that are aligned against her, but she has agency and she is courageous and in some ways naive and, you know, she doesn't listen to her mother and she makes decisions that, that put everybody in danger, herself included. So I really had that feeling. And, and maybe some of it was being in my 50s and sort of saying, you know what, if I'm going to write a book, I'm going to take a swing. And mm-hmm. that's why it's separated into separate books, because I wanted it's not chapters. I want people to know we're in a different book now. And it's it's all part of the same larger story. But there, there is a shift in tone and in point of view, the way the book is written. And I know that for some readers, like some agents, 
you know, got the book and they're like, well, I liked the beginning, but then I kind of wasn't interested or I loved it <laughs> out in the desert, but I wasn't interested in the other stuff. And I know that's a risk to go broad and to write a social novel. Most books burrow into a single character's consciousness and sort of we see it always from their point of view. But again, when you're writing a social novel, the idea is that you have to get inside all of the characters to understand not what they did right or wrong, but why they did, why they make the decisions they make. Do you think that's why you were able to get into the mindset of a, a teenage Latina and Nancy Reagan and a man who seduces teenage girls without sort of like <laughs> yeah. stopping yourself and saying, wait a minute, am I yeah. allowed to write this? Or, oh my God, do I want to go there? Yeah. I mean, look there, I didn't even think about that stuff, Lindsay, to be honest. I know that there are major issues, you know, we're in, a, in an era rightfully where underrepresented voices are um, needing to tell their stories in the literary world, thank God, is a precinct of the culture that's saying, hey, history is just the story of destructive, uh, you know, white guys, like we need other stories, because there are lots of people who have not been allowed to tell their stories. And ideally, it should be the people who have lived those lives who tell those stories. But I honestly, I have to go with what the muse supplies me. And when Lorena signs walked into my imagination, I knew that I was so, um, I was in, I was in awe of her. I was shocked by her courage and her intelligence and her cunning. And she was the engine of it for me. I never said, do I have the right to write this or not? But I did say, especially in drafts three and four and five and six, hey, if I'm going to write from a position of privilege about all these characters who are so different and have led lives so different from my own, I better get it right or mm -hmm. die trying. Mm -hmm. So I spent a lot of time trying to figure out getting, you know, sort of sensitivity reads um, from people. I, I, I had the book read by fellow reporters who'd worked on the border and understood immigration and by uh, a woman who grew up under the same circumstances, essentially, as Lorena, um, and by a police officer who was working at that time in California, and uh, just a whole bunch of friends of mine who I said to them, am I getting anything wrong? I worked really hard to try to find empathy for all the characters and and to also make sure that the story really belongs to the characters. I did not want to have a narrator saying, now, now, dear reader, you see the moral lesson here. That's not how a good social novel operates. A good social novel is not about saying, here's the lesson that should be imparted. It's about leading the, the reader into their own moral confusions and making them feel really implicated by um, the ways in which all of us are corrupt and all of us make you know destructive decisions that we can't see at the time. So I was quite determined to make sure that I was being forgiving and fair and and fully understanding the characters. and I I just didn't think, oh my gosh, should I um, do I have the right to write this or not? I was simply way more interested in what is going to happen to Lorena? What's going to happen to Tony? What's going to happen to Graciela? Um, you know, what is Guerrero going to help? Is the police officer, you know, in question going to uh, be, be able to help Lorena um, uh, sort of bring some version of justice to, to bear? And those questions ultimately are a lot more interesting than the author's own questions, even though the, I think it's, it's fair and necessary 
for an author of privilege and a white dude like me to think, hey, um, I need to make sure if I'm going to write from a position of privilege about marginalized characters that I get it right or as right as I can. I think that's an important thing for me to be thinking about. But if I'm only thinking about that, I think it actually keeps me from fully entering into what novelists are supposed to do. It's our job mm -hmm. description, mm -hmm. which is enter into the consciousness of, of other people and walk in their shoes and try to understand who they are and how they operate. And, you know, that's not an excuse for um, sloppy or lazy writing. Well, I, I was, I, you know, if anybody finds the book exploitative, that opinion is, I'm not going to argue with it. That is the reader's right. But my responsibility as a novelist is to tell the stories that I feel called to tell. And I, if I'm constantly worrying about whether I have permission or not, I just can't be in that improvisatory flow that is like the state you need to be in when you're making a book. Mm -hmm. I just want to hear a little bit more about your um, relationship with the muse that you've mentioned um, and, and um... <laughs> it's intermittent and vexing. That's <laughs> <laughs> Do you. Um, are you someone who needs the muse to visit before you can sit down and, and write something or, or is that, or is it something that you're like, okay, you know, I'll wait, I'll, it'll come to me when it comes. In the meantime, I'm working on this over here. Yeah. I mean, honestly, Lindsay, I think that, that, that is like, I keep really, I try to keep busy. This is probably my journalism background, but to me, it's like, okay, if I'm working on a short story or a novel, I consider that to be something that's really tough to do because you have to be separated from consciously from the world that's swirling around. We all have kids. You know that you're constantly thinking about them. Are they okay? What's going on with my partnership? What's going on with the bills and the drop-offs and pickups? There's a lot of stuff to, to push us out of that imaginative space. So I'm, I don't sit there and say, I'm going to just gonna work on a, a beautiful piece of art every day. That's just not how I roll. Many days I'm saying, I'm going to do some money work. I'm going to do, I'm going to write an article. I'll do some manuscript consulting. I'm going to read a book that is really interesting to lead a book group, a book group discussion, or um, I teach. And so I'm reading student work a lot and, and reading the assignments that we'll talk about in class. And there's a lot of stuff that I do that is not anywhere close to the creative act of being in that flow state. Mm -hmm. And in fact, I found over the pandemic um, that I needed to just go spend a week at a cheap Airbnb or something in order to get far enough from the pressures of my life that I could be with Lorena in her world and Guerrero and the stalwarts and the rest of them. So I'm, I'm, and I try to be what I say to, to writers generally and students of writing is if you are experiencing something that sounds like writer's block, which is like writer depression, mm -hmm. it's really self-doubt. And it's that inhibiting voice that says, oh, it's never going to go anywhere and it's no good. And it keeps you from even trying. So my solution to writer's block is set the bar as low as possible. Mm -hmm. Yes. And, you know, all this American nonsense about like, everything's got to be, you just should be pooping out gold. Like, forget <laughs> it. <laughs> Some, sometimes you don't have it. And I oftentimes, when that's the case, I do a different kind of writing or I use my mind in another way and just hope that somebody like Lorena comes along or a story idea or a voice that captures me and that's ultimately more interesting 
and the other kinds of work that I might do. Mm -hmm. Interesting enough that my ego is no longer the issue. I mean, your goal as a writer is to be more interested in the story you're telling than anything else. Mm -hmm. I feel like the character that would be, I was just, you know, obviously as a writer, I'm reading this book thinking about how I would tackle some of some of it or what would be a real challenge, I feel like. And I feel like the character of Marcus yeah. would be tough because I feel like it would be so easy to have him take over the novel. Yeah. And was it difficult to modulate how evil is such a terrible way to put it, but how heinous Marcus Marcus's acts were was it yeah. difficult to to modulate how big of a role he ended up playing in the in the final narrative? Yeah, I mean, I think what the key for me was to say um, in what is lodged in Marcus's past that makes him behave in this way, that makes him have these destructive desires, and and it took me pushing him out into the desert and trying to figure out how did this guy grow up, what story was he born into. And once I understood that he sees in Lorena kind of a version of himself, that is somebody who's born, born into very difficult circumstances. Um, and even in, in, as we come to discover, you know, was in an abusive household um, and really had to struggle to make a larger life for himself and never fully recovered from that experience of abuse. Um, you know, what, what you've experienced, the pain you've experienced gets put out into the world and onto the world. And once I understood that, I found, I found it easier to, to allow him to play a role in the book and to, again, when you're talking about somebody who's, who has um, beha behaviors and desires that he does, I think it's really important if he's going to even be a point of view character that he is not flattened out. You know, we all have our own version of, of destructive, unwholesome desires. And mm -hmm. I hate when we draw these lines and say, well, that person is beyond the pale. We're all mm -hmm. beyond the pale. We all have moments and phases and urges that are despicable and unthinkable, whether it's, you know, I mean, as parents, you guys know that there are moments where you just look at those kids and you're like, boy, I'm glad there's nothing sharp around here. <laughs> <laughs> we, don't, we don't like to say it, right? But but it's true. It's in there. Mm -hmm. And with Marcus, I think what was important was for me to see what is underneath these destructive behaviors and then to put him in an environment to contrive a plot in which he's sort of forced into a world that is saying something that he knows is not true, which is God wants you to do this. It's okay for you to have these illicit destructive desires. It is God's way. And for me, that was a real chance to explore the, the sort of the belief systems that we hold. Are we a person of science and rationality or are we a person of faith and superstition? And, you know, that's part of the astronomy astrology kind of thing that I, I got interested in exploring. I really feel like the, the the book that's primarily about Marcus is really about how human beings devise a belief system that justifies how they think and feel and behave. I really love that there are times though that you see Marcus as just like your typical angry dad. Oh, yeah, <laughs> absolutely. Yeah. With oh, yeah. Glenn and oh man, it's um I could see him so clearly in those moments. It's heartbreaking, you know. Glenn is a minor character, but there's a scene in that camping trip 
where they're out, where they're, you know, outside the fire and Lorraine is sort of listening for when am I going to get my chance to possibly get a little FaceTime with Mr. Stallworth, who she has a massive crush on, right? But she hears Glenn desperately looking for his father's approval for some way to get on his radar. And, you know, that's me and my dad. That's every kid and their and their and their father or their mother where there's that universal desire to be sort of seen and understood and sympathized with. And and Marcus is a pretty unforgiving person. He's tough on himself and he's tough on his family. And he comes from a past that makes his children seem to him very spoiled and entitled. And, you know, he can't really give them the mercy and, and understanding and trust ultimately that he does kind of give to Lorena. Um, that relationship also began in early drafts of the book was much more rooted in like physical desire and illicit, all that stuff. And it took me a lot of drafts to understand that these two people are, um, they feel a kinship with one another. They understand one another intuitively. They both have scientific minds and brilliance that has allowed them, that is sort of their path out of a, of a difficult circumstance. Mm-hmm. I love that you put Vera Rubin in this book. <laughs> Good. I thought that yeah. was so great. I love that you just felt comfortable putting real people in. <laughs> I mean, Nancy well, Reagan is the main example, but. Um, yeah. Part, part of the book was is really about like all the systems that are stacked against Lorena. One of them is just patriarchy. And she's a woman, a young woman of, of real intelligence. And part of what she's up against is that if you want to be a scientist, that's a world dominated by men. And here's Vera Rubin, who in a crucial moment enters the narrative and shows her, hey, you can be a scientist of consequence, but you are going to be swimming upstream. You're going to have to, you're going to have to work twice as hard and settle for half the credit you deserve, but it is possible. And for me as a teacher, the book was partly about the role that the hugely consequential role that the right teacher can play at the right time. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, Vera Rubin becomes one of those teachers for Lorena. You've got Miss Catalyst at the beginning, who's, you know, telling these stories about, you know, uh, and, and that was a fun thing, sort of an Easter egg to plant where at the beginning, she's telling the story about, um, you know, M- Margaret Mitchell, mm-hmm. who's this mm-hmm. early astronomer who was, who, you know, who was Rubens, Vera Rubens kind of hero and lodestar. And I just like that idea of this kind of um, this daisy chain of consequence where uh, unknowingly Miss Catalyst is suggesting, you know, is, is introducing the idea of it is possible to make a life in the sciences of learning and, and, I think in that way, Marcus Stallworth is really important and a positive force in, you know, in, in, in Lorena's life. He's the one who says to her, there's an invisible world at your feet. And there's also a world above you and the stars that is one of unbelievable splendor. And, you know, that is the, he's the first person, Miss Catalyst as well, but he's the first person outside of school who says to her, like, you're brilliant and you need to look at the world around you and try to understand it. That's what you've been called to do. Don't you understand? Mm-hmm. I think that's, you know, beautiful, even though there's another part of him that's completely messed up and destructive. And, you know, he's the, the, Lorena gets into a lot of trouble uh, kind of having a crush on him. But the, this is what I mean about 
the complexity that a novel can offer, it isn't just, oh, that terrible, awful person. It's like people's interactions. You don't just get good stuff or bad stuff. You get both. See, this book is published with a, a new press. Um, tell us a little bit about Zando. Tell us a little bit about your experience uh, publishing with them. Yeah, Zando is a new publisher. Um, you know, Emily Stern is a, you know, qu quite a well-known figure. And she basically left traditional publishing and said, well, I want to start a new publisher and I want to solve the problem of discoverability. I want to figure out how to rather than the standard model of like we're going to publish 50 books a year and kind of throw them against up against the wall and hope one or two of them stick i think she had the feeling we have got to be more targeted and figure out how to find the right audience for the right book and not publish a ton of books publish a smaller number of books and figure out how to find the audience that's been waiting for that book i also had the great fortune of having an editor emily bell who'd been whoop, whoop. at emily emily bell no, I said whoop whoop because she was my yeah. editor at FSG. Okay, so you know then. I mean, oh like, yes, you know Emily is uh, the thing that's amazing about her is she was so. Uh, she said, um, I, "You know what you're doing here. I just think I just need you to turn some dials." And her comments were so brilliant and spot on, but not insistent. She wasn't like you have to do this. Mm -hmm. And I found myself, Lindsay, going through the manuscript and being like. She is right every single time. And not, <laughs> only she, not only is she right every single time, but she's right. What she's saying here also applies to some other places. So in the standard model where your editor like demands 150 edits and you're like, well, I'll make 73 and that's my final offer. In this case, <laughs> she was like, ah, she had about 23 things to say. And I was like, you know what? I need to make like 123 edits. <laughs> what you're saying here is so accurate that I need to make other edits that will make the book even stronger. Like her advice was so gently delivered, but it was so precise. Yeah. She's so California about it. Oh yeah. That's the other thing is she's like unbelievably laid back. Mm -hmm. She sent me this. Uh, it's funny because it's right on the wall next to me. But like when, when, when they bought the book, she sent me this note. I'm going to just like read it to you, even though you might have to edit it out because it has a swear word, which is very Emily. She's like, <laughs> calm and joy. Welcome to Xano. I promise you, I won't fuck this up. Signed Emily <laughs> Bell. Yep. And I was like, the moment Classic. I got that with, with a box of like nice chocolate, I was like, yeah, everything's going to be just fine. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, she is. She's very laid back about it, but, but razor sharp and um, so clear eyed and confident. Yeah. Um, it's a rare combo for somebody to be totally a high achieving badass, but also weirdly laid back. It's very unsettling to me. I always feel like I'm quivering with anxiety. And she's just like, <laughs> yeah, whatever. We'll find a pub date. Let's not worry about it too much. And I'm like, but it's my job to worry. I know. <laughs> I know. And she's like younger than me, um, which is also uncomfortable. <laughs> yeah. Yep. Yeah. Well, everybody's younger than me, but I was like, yeah. Yeah, it's, it's always a little bit annoying when people who are younger than me are both more poised and wiser. But I was also <laughs> like, whatever, she's working on behalf of the book. So I'm just super psyched. And I just thought they, they did a really beautiful job with the, you know, I, I really like the cover. I, I know it sort of says like thriller, but I get it. It is a thriller. And it's like a social thriller. And I love most of all that um, Emily, when I spoke with her, 
I was like, you know, I know that it changes point of view and I know it's all these different books. And she's like, dude, that's why we like it. We oh. like, it, you know, <laughs> we like that you're taking a big swing. We like that it has these broader ambitions. Like you don't have to apologize for it. That's why we're having this discussion. And I was like, but can't I worry some more? <laughs> Give me something else to worry about, please. Right, exactly. Yeah, I think I've told this story before on the podcast, but when I got my copy edits back from my first novel that I did with her, the it's written in like vernacular in some ways. Um, and there's a lot of like comma splices and um, mm-hmm. for rhythm sake. And it was my first novel. And um <laughs> So I was like accepting all of the copy edits and I sent it back to her and she was like, no, 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 no. She's like, you need to stet most of these. She wow. was like, this is your voice. This is how you write. And that's why we're publishing it. That I was is blown away by that. That is pro level right there. I know. I know. Yeah. To go against the copy editor, just to know the rhythm as, as she does. Yep, exactly. Um, how does it feel now that it's finally finished and out in the world? Oh, I'm just totally psyched i mean i i accepted the weird thing is i spent all these years and decades like saying oh like i'm a failed novelist and once i actually finished the book to be honest and it's not like i was like oh well that was this is a masterpiece but i just knew that after so many failures and struggling with the idea this the idea for this book and the execution of it and so many other crappy novels i was like look I know that I did the thing that I set out to do. I saw my character into danger and I saw them through it and it doesn't have to be published. I would love it if it was, but the thing that I needed to prove to myself was if you would just relax and let yourself, the muse will, will allow you to execute on a big ambitious story. And so in a certain way I, I had accepted in my mind, like this might never get published. It's definitely not a great time. Um, for, for, you know, a, a person of ex- insane privilege like me, a white dude to write a big social novel with lots of point of view characters from characters who are marginalized. And I accepted that. I was like, you know what? But that's different than the internal feeling that you have when you know you did your best. And, you know, like, you know that you did the thing that you sat down to do. There's a certain gratification that's intrinsic in that. And so everything else is kind of gravy. Like, I'm so delighted that that Zando, you know, bought it and that Emily and this great team put it out into the world. But the thing that I wanted to do was to really honor the agreement I had with Lorena and the story that she has to tell the world. And once that was done and I felt like, you know, successfully, that was the thing that I was looking for. The rest is really great and I'm delighted, but it's it's not at the heart of it. Will you ever do it again? God knows. I mean, the thing is that that the thing that I mean, I guess it, at age ninety, I'll like have my <laughs> second. If if the past is a prediction, like it's probably going to be in my nineties and be like, I got another one. <laughs> and Alex I and I know. will still be doing this. Oh, so right. we'll have yeah, good. That. I'd be like, hey, you guys. <laughs> you guys will be asking the same question over and over, and I'll be answering just the, just a single question over and over, and, and we'll be like, yeah, that was awesome. But I mean, I don't. The the, the thing that is amazing to me is that people like write a novel and then they just like write another one i'm gonna need some time to like i think sort of recharge and to figure out what will honestly like carry me through a big long project because i i feel like writing is 
the whole ball game is outlasting your doubt. And even though I'm, you know, you know, I've, I've published books and, and I sort of have some little mid-list record, the central voice inside me is like, you're pretty much a failure. You're, you're, you're not going to do this again. I'm plagued by doubt. And like my job really is to outlast the doubt and for the story I want to tell to be more interesting than my ego drama about, are you good enough? And are you smart and eloquent and all that stuff? And so I've got to find another story where I just get more interested in the story than all that other crap, because I've had the, the other experience many times where I just jump into the next novel and say, no, this time and just push the characters around. And I don't want to do that. I think it's really a waste of, you know, it's a waste of, of my time, my limited time and attention. So I'm going to wait until I have another great story, probably arriving somewhere in my late eighties, <laughs> my early nineties, I'll be knocking on your door again. <laughs> well, you're always well, invited. That's right. And whatever it is, Steve, we, uh, we look forward to it. We both really enjoyed the hell out of this novel. Yes. And, uh, Thank so you much so much for talking with us tonight. Thanks for coming on the show. Yeah, it's a real pleasure. I mean, you guys know this as writers, like the biggest compliment that somebody can pay you is like, I read your book. That's yes, true. That it's is true. so they true. They don't have to say anything else. Yes. Mm-hmm. I actually read, you guys said a lot of kind and potentially fraudulent things about your enjoyment. <laughs> That's not- earnest, but <laughs> We would never. I know, but you know what I mean? Like, what what's more important is just like to me did i did somebody read it through to the end and it's such a huge compliment when it's you know a a novel because that's a big commitment and so anybody who reads the book if they send me a note or they tell me that i'm just like thank you so much i know that took a lot of your time i hope it was like worthwhile (laughs) well it was and uh we we recommend it it was a really like you're saying, it's a, show, a social novel. It's partly a thriller, but it's really, really fun to read. Um, it's just, it's, it's a great, it's a great book. Thank you. That was good. That was good. It was no. fun to talk to him. It's a, it's a interesting story about how the novel came to be and it's a it's a very good novel this was the first uh like thing i got in the mail that included like all the swag Mm. like it came with its own horoscope cards and um like a bunch of other stuff my kids took it all (laughs) It it was like really like packed in this really amazing box and you know like you've seen people get like swag boxes for movies or books or whatever and it was my first time getting something like that and i felt so cool congratulations zando um and yeah and it came out like in the spring um and we couldn't have him on then because of scheduling but really glad we got to talk to him and i'm really glad i read the book it was awesome and so inspiring to just be like you know what these characters are speaking to me and i i have to i have to honor that Mm. One of my favorite things as a reader is just when there's a hard transition into another POV and the writer pulls it off. And uh, that happens several times in this novel. It was enjoyable. That is so true. Or like, even when um, like you're, you're with them in the moment 
mm-hmm. and then you get this little peek at like actually what happens later is blah 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 mm-hmm. um i actually marked that that first one yeah I, it was so good yeah yes yeah it's it's a lot of fun i was thinking to myself i think i'm gonna write a novel i'm gonna make a list have i already said this i'm gonna make a list of all the things i love reading in books and i'm just gonna write those scenes featuring the same character and that's gonna be my next novel i love <laughs> like, that I love um, like when people are um, like when they talk about what they're what groceries they're buying. Mm-hmm. I love when people throw money to so, like solve something. Mm-hmm. I love uh, like <laughs> sex scenes. I didn't realize you were gonna actually fucking list the things. It's amazing. I know there's more, but I I, yeah. I can't remember. There's like a lot. There's a there's there's less lame ones. I was listening to. Elizabeth Strout on other people mm-hmm. and Brad asked her uh you know how she goes about writing her novels and she said that she writes every she does not write sequentially and that she basically does what you just described like she she'll picture her character and if there's a something if she can just imagine a scene with the character she'll write it like whatever has heat and then she'll just write another one and another one. And then she'll just eventually figure out how they are pieced together. I love that. I, I, I know. I, I that, had never heard that. And I was, it was really interesting. It seemed I was, it made total sense though, because how often, you know, are you either sequentially or just within your thinking on, you know, end up writing a scene that maybe you don't feel ready emotionally or, intellectually to write and you end up just kind of whatever doing yeah, you know i think um oh god i think it was matt bell or no maybe it was did i already talk about this um this lit hub essay that carter bays wrote i was mm, telling my students no about idea. it he said stop focusing on the how and just focus on the what so like not how is this story going you know like how are they going to get where i need them to go but focus on like okay i know there's a scene where this happens i'm going to write that scene and now i know there's this other scene i want to write and i feel like that is a way to keep momentum and and stop yourself from getting bogged down in like um you know i'm a stupid loser who's bad at plot <laughs> you know mm-hmm. um is that the new other people episode uh i don't know there's so many of them oh, it's okay. very it's very very recent it's either okay. like the most recent or i don't know a week or two ago or something it was a really it was great it was really good she's so awesome i've never read her and i feel like i'm gonna love her so i'm kind of like putting it off you would love all of kittredge yeah i i haven't read do that, that do you ever just like delay yes. getting into somebody because you i just i want to be able to have a little bit of time and read them all yes for sure there's tons yeah. of I feel like I've only just read one Lydia Millet. Lydia mm-hmm. Millet? Lydia Millet? Um, Probably Millet, but I don't Millet. know. Yeah, I've only read one of hers, and I feel like that's a whole. Dana Spiota, yeah. same thing. Oh my God, I love her. I've She's only read best. one Shirley Hazard. What? Me too. Only one Shirley Hazard. What was the Lydia Millet you've read? The Children's Bible. Oh, okay. The, the most recent one, right? I feel like there was one after that. Oh wow! Holy shit! Now there's another one called Dinosaurs that is coming out. God damn it! I feel like Children's Bible just came out in my head. I I know. Let me see. We're gonna we're gonna solve this mystery, Lydia Millet. 
books what you've been up to girl <laughs> nope i think you might be wait can you just give them to me like no you're i think you are right i think that was the most recent and now dinosaurs is uh coming out she has amazing titles for her novels yes i absolutely love those titles yes pills and starships uh george prince george bush dark prince of love these are um, just like every single one i fucking love oh pure and radiant heart omnivores pills and starships sweet lamb of heaven these are fucking how could she obviously she's a genius yes she is um you got anything going on in your life or everything's nice and easy right nothing i got a new illness oh, i'm happy to report you personally me yeah i don't know i woke up with something i've oh, been feeling Jesus. terrible all day um i'm reading a really great book it's by rachel aviv oh yeah yeah i keep seeing this about, right? everyone's posting this pic i haven't yeah I know you're it's talking a great about. cover great speaking cover. of white sparse covers with just you mm-hmm. know words we were talking to deborah Shout Shapiro about Deb, that. sure strangers to ourselves unsettled minds and the stories that make us Cool. Um, and it's she's sort of examining like this moment in time between when a person is experiencing mental illness mm-hmm. and then this then is diagnosed and starts talking about their lives with mental illness so the story sort of changes so mm. she's like what you know there's like that space in between where it's, it's not labeled and you're not like viewing everything through that and people aren't treating you like oh well the so-and-so has bipolar or schizophrenic or ocd or whatever there's like this space where she feels like is an interesting space to um examine and so it's like case studies it's it's great she starts with her own story and like when she was six she became anorexic for a brief period um and she says you know because she was six, she didn't really care what the psychiatrists were saying. So she say six, six years old. Yeah. And it wasn't, it was more of like a, like a childlike, um, like, uh, fasting on Yom Kippur Mm. and not wanting to be, not wanting to gain weight, like one of her classmates. And also her parents were going through a very stressful divorce. And Mm. so it was like a way of I don't know, controlling things. But she said because she was so young, like the psychiatrist calling it anorexia and talking to her or her parents about it in front of her, it just kind of went over her head. So then she just like randomly started eating again Hmm. and wasn't anorexic after that, as far as I can tell. Um, And so it wasn't like this part of the narrative of her life. It wasn't like it didn't set her life's course or whatever that Hmm. moment. Um. Anyway, I I find that so interesting because I do feel like there's this thought that if we can label what it is people are experiencing, then there's a way of like explaining like, oh, well, that's why, you know, these triggers are hard for this person or that's, that's why this person needs this medication or this kind of therapy. But it can also sort of like push you into this narrative anyway it's great it's really good i um love case studies i, I guess that's what these mm. would be i read this one when i was living in new york 20 years ago 20 plus years ago this book 
And in one of the case studies, this man was like clogging public toilets and waiting in the stall next to the clogged toilet. And it was a women's bathroom and the women would poop and they wouldn't be able to flush it and they would leave and he would take the poop and eat it. Damn. Do you know what's funny is <laughs> you're if anyone laugh. knows what that book is called, please tell me. I have been trying please. to find it ever since. Lindsay wants to take it to Kinko's, get that no, printed up as a poster. It was actually and it was put very, it above the bed. It was That's so poignant. His father had told him all his life that he was a disgusting, no good, mm-hmm. whatever, and so he started to inhabit that mind, mm-hmm. mindset. Dad I'm disgusting. Right. Mm-hmm. Oh God, no. Okay, anyway, what? <laughs> what? Uh, when you were describing. The Rachel Aviv six-year-old anorexia. I had, for some reason, I haven't thought about this in like, honestly, 20 years probably. I probably said 20 because you just said 20. Many years. But I remember, I'm just going to tell you this memory. It's it's unrelated. It's related, unrelated. Okay. 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 This is just an embarrassing childhood thing. So I was in f- first grade. And a class, this is so bad. <laughs> Classmate of mine got cancer. The medication that he had to take caused him to be like very bloated. Mm-hmm. And I remember thinking I was so fucking jealous of this kid <laughs> because he got so much attention because he was like, everybody, everybody's parents would be like, all right, he's not fat. It's okay. Even if he was, it's okay. He's just bloated because of the medication because he has fucking childhood cancer. Be nice to him. So everyone would like bring him stuff and be like, I don't remember what his name was, but like, oh, you know, whatever. You'd be so nice to him. <laughs> and I remember thinking just pure rage. Like, so I was like, God damn it. It's like, I want that attention that the kid with cancer is getting. And, uh, that's my memory and I'm no. a bad person. Okay, first of all, um John Mulaney has a whole bit about that. God. He had some I can't remember exactly what the story was, but he was so jealous of some classmates' personal tragedy. But when I was a kid in fourth grade, my best friends, the twins across the street, Katie and Alexia, shout out Katie and Alexia, their mom got in a terrible car accident. She was like hit by a Frito Lay truck. Jesus. And, yeah. And and she was in the hospital and it was terrible. And I was so fucking jealous. <laughs> That's terrible. Like I I was like, um, I have to somehow insert myself into this tragedy. Okay. This is like the best friend of my the 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 mom of my best friends. Mm-hmm. This also involves me, you know, like my neighbor right across the street. I practically lived over there. And I like my sweet fourth grade teacher somehow saw that I needed attention as well. And like, she was going to take them for a sleepover at her house and like a day at the mall and like go out to lunch. And she took me as well. What a great teacher. When it came time for the sleepover, I had to go home because the sleepover was just for them. It's a bridge too far. Isn't that so nice? Because I feel like I would have been like, you're being a little pissant. (laughs) Like, this isn't about you. But I remember Uh. being so jealous. I wanted a tragedy that people could feel sorry for me about. God. I, and and I think that's just a natural childhood thing. 
it's like the it's like the fucked up version of like someone getting glasses and you're like your vision's fine but you're like god damn it i want glasses yeah my kids do that all the time my my middle child's vision is perfect and my oldest needs glasses and he's my middle child is like incensed that he can't wear totally. can't wear glasses to the point where i bought him a pair of blue blue light mm-hmm. glasses yeah like as soon as we got home they were like on the ground stepped on he didn't give a shit you know <laughs> They do it all the time. Like one of them will get hurt and I'll be consoling them, like, you know, rubbing their back or whatever. Mm-hmm. And the other one will go, what about me? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's like, you can't kids. Just... I, I do this. I do this all the time. Like if Fritz says to the girls, like, all right, love you. Give them a kiss on the head. Walk in the room. I'm like, uh, excuse me. Hello. I'm uh, also uh, a person. Hello. I got a forehead. <laughs> oh, anyway. Anyway, we did Rachel it. Aviv. Rachel Aviv. Steve Almond. Steve Almond. Good job, Steve. Yep. Goodbye. All right. Goodbye. I'm a Writer Butt is recorded by Alex Hickley and me, Lindsay Hunter, in our respective basements. Editing by Lindsay Hunter. Music by Max Loop. Yeah, yeah.